Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining podcasts. Do you like to listen? Hi, I'm Raygun. I'm Sarah. And we're the Oddballs Podcast. We are a weekly podcast that talks about odd stuff. And you're listening to History Goes Bump. tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 233rd episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. On this episode, we're bringing you another Haunted Cemeteries. This is Haunted Cemetery 6, and we have three of them that we're going to be bringing to you. We'll be joined on one of them by paranormal investigator Peter Dowling. Before we do that, we want to welcome to the Spooktacular crew, Carolyn. Hello, Carolyn. Kim. Hey, Kim. Stephen with a PH. Hello, Stephen with a PH. Irene. Hi, Irene. Peter, who will be joining us shortly. Hey, Peter. Jason. Hi, Jason. David. Hello, David. Madeline. Hey, Madeline. And Autumn. What a perfect name for this time of the year. <laughs> Hello, Autumn. And now, this moment in oddity. The Achiri are a part of the mythology of the country of India. The Achiri is able to entice people because this is a spirit or ghost that appears in the form of a little girl. They are said to live in the mountains, and for this reason they are sometimes referred to as hill fairies. They wander into villages at night, and when they come, they bring sickness with them. Generally, the Achiri preys on children. The interesting part of their appearance is that descriptions of them resemble those of black-eyed children because the Achiri has dark eyes that appear unnatural. This spirit will also attack the elderly, and for them, the sickness brought is certain death because they have weak immune systems. The only protection that is offered against these spirits is for people to wear a red ribbon tied around their neck. For some reason, this repels the Achiri. This is just a piece of legend from India, but it certainly is odd. Creepy makes history more delicious. And now, this month in history. (laughs) 
the month of November, on the 20th in 1947, England's Princess Elizabeth married Philip Mountbatten. Elizabeth was the first child of King George VI and became Queen Elizabeth II upon the death of her father in 1952, and Philip was Prince Philip of Greece and Denmark. The couple originally met in 1934 at the wedding of Princess Marina of Greece and Denmark and Prince George, Duke of Kent. When they met again later in 1939, Elizabeth was only 13 years old, but she fell madly in love with Philip and they began exchanging letters. Elizabeth's father did not want her engaged before she was 21, so the couple had to keep their engagement a secret for a year. The wedding took place at Westminster Abbey. The couple had four children. This year, 2017, marks their platinum anniversary, meaning they have been married for 70 years. Most cemeteries are peaceful, final resting places, but occasionally these graveyards have spirits at unrest for a variety of reasons. On this episode, we have three cemeteries that we will be visiting. Paranormal investigator Peter Dowling joins us to discuss Woodlawn Cemetery in Sandy Creek, New York. Then we venture to Ohio and visit Chestnut Grove Cemetery that is the final resting place of the victims of one of the most horrific train wrecks in the history of the United States. And finally, we head to one of the most haunted cemeteries in America, and that is yet another cemetery named Greenwood in Decatur, Illinois. Join us as we explore the history and hauntings of these graveyards. I can't believe it, Denise. We've done six of these, and so far in three of them, we've had a Greenwood Cemetery. It must be a very popular name for a final resting place. And what makes them unique is that they all have hauntings connected to them, because as we know, not all cemeteries do. First up, we have Woodlawn Cemetery, which is located in Sandy Creek, New York, and we're going to be joined by paranormal investigator Peter Dowling. The town of Sandy Creek was first settled in 1803. It became official in 1825 as it was incorporated out of the town of Richland. In 1820, the Woodlawn Cemetery was established as a burial ground for the Presbyterian Church. There are over 5,000 burials here. In 1866, Union Cemetery Association was formed to maintain the cemetery. And around the turn of the 20th century, more land was added. And again, in 1965, a small tract was purchased. One of the burials here is for Harrison Cole, who was born in 1840. He was the leader of the 3rd Brigade Band during the Civil War. Several members of that army band were killed at Gettysburg, and Cole narrowly escaped capture by the Confederates. In 1880, he put together his own band and named it Cole's Cornet Band. He died in 1916. A. Jasper Moore was born in 1868 and died in 1906. He has an interesting epitaph that reads, When the fitful fever is ended and the foolish wrangling of the market and forum is closed, grass heals over the scar which our descent into bosom of the earth is made, and the carpet of the infant becomes the blanket of the dead. I just was like, wow, that says a whole lot in those few lines. And all of this comes off of a pamphlet that you can do taking a walking tour through Woodlawn Cemetery yourself, and I just pulled a few of the interesting ones off of it. Dr. J. Lyman Bulkley was born in 1832. He was not only the local doctor, but he owned the Bulkley Opera House and the Corner Drug Store. In 1894, he was shot and stabbed by an inmate of an insane asylum. He managed to live, and the inmate, Gaylord Williams, shot and killed himself. The Salisbury family were prominent members of the community, and several are buried here. Members of the family have served in several wars, starting during the Civil War and on through World War II. Moreau Salisbury is one of those members, and he served during the Civil War. 
He was wounded at the Battle of Antietam. A bullet went through his ankle and left him with a painful limp for the rest of his life. The boots that he wore during that war are at Sandy Creek's History Center archives, and I'm not sure if they're the ones that he actually got shot in, I'm assuming, because obviously during that war there weren't a whole lot of boots floating around, so you didn't have more than one pair, so I'm thinking there's a bullet hole in that one. It'd be interesting to see. (laughs) Interesting, yes. Charles M. Salisbury was vice president of the Lacona Bank in the 1930s. In 1936, he was killed in a bank holdup. The men who committed the crime were convicted and sentenced to life in prison. Well, we are joined by Peter Dowling, and he used to be with the Eastern Shore Paranormal Research, and he had contacted us and let us know about some places that he had investigated, and one of those happens to be Woodlawn Cemetery in Sandy Creek, and I went, a haunted cemetery? We have to have him on about that. How are you doing, Peter? Oh, fantastic, Diane. Well, we're really Uh, honored to have you on with us, because you've been on with people like Art Bell and George Norrie, and we're just little Diane and Denise, so this is very cool. Very interesting people. I enjoy talking with Art. It, I miss him on the radio waves, and uh, George Norrie is doing an excellent job for Coast to Coast. But thank you for having me on. Why don't we start off with you telling everybody a little bit about yourself and what got you interested in the paranormal? Oh, sure. Well, I was just an average kid. Uh, I believe when I was about seven years old, I was at the library in my high school, and I used to read books on ghosts and things like that and UFOs, and I was really interested. I grew up in a household where they didn't believe in such things, you know, that everything was uh, religious, everything was associated with the devil, and I didn't believe that. I always kept an open mind. There were so many things out there, and I had to investigate, and I wanted to know. So about right age seven, like I said, I got my mother to buy me a Ouija board. Oh, I know it. Oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) And I can't believe she Uh, bought it for you. That's crazy. Well, well, she was a Methodist and a diehard Methodist, and she believed this is just a toy. And that's the misconception of most people. They think it's just a toy or even get those who get them that not all witches, but there's some that believe, well, I can just close it and do certain rituals where I can close the door. Uh, Unfortunately, I don't believe you can shut that door. (laughs) Once you open a portal, things come through that's beyond anyone's control, in my opinion. You were telling me is you've had a lot of situations where that's happened to you. Yes, yes. Well, yeah, it started out innocently and things progressed. And then uh, we started getting answers uh, from the board. Of course, it started out with a child spirit. Then all of a sudden, things were nasty. Things were coming off the board. And one evening I was playing it with another girl and another boy. We were just kids. And I saw this shadow on the wall, like a shadow person. And, And it was like a deformed human shape. We flew out of that room really fast, but that right then and there told me that things weren't black and white like the Bible said. (laughs) So that was my first experience, and unfortunately, it was a negative entity, and things have spiraled. Bad luck has been hitting me through the years, but things have gotten better through the years as well. You know, I put that behind me. The longer I've been into investigating cemeteries and haunted places scientifically, the more questions I started to have. Last time I talked to George Norrie on Coast to Coast, I had a theory that sometimes our loved ones stay behind waiting for us to cross over when it's our time. I firmly believe that because I've had EVPs of people who have passed on that were relatives 
I recorded their voice and played it back to the loved ones. And of course, that was very emotional. Oh, and I can uh, so, you know, there's just more questions than answers. It seems like sometimes I run into deception, but it's sometimes, you know, like with the EVPs, carry conversation with someone and of course they have their opinion and they'll say something and I'll have it on recording. So I used to send all the recordings to uh, Coast to Coast AM. Since you've kind of started down this path here, let me ask you this, because Denise and I were both the same, raised kind of the same way you were, is that if it's some kind of ghost, then it's a demonic entity. And Mm -hmm. as you said, you get further into this, you start having experiences yourself, and you're looking at it and you're like, okay, there's got to be more than just everything's a demon. And so, Mm -hmm. like you said, you believe that some of these spirits are loved ones hanging behind. What are some other theories that you have about what is a spirit or a ghost? Pretty much, uh, you know, you have the intelligent haunts and then you have the reoccurring haunts. Not really sure, but I'll tell you, I've had apparitions form in front of me and I went after it. I actually put my hand through an apparition. I see a lot on TV, you know, it seems like a lot of these TV ghost hunters are encouraging people who I don't have any experience in it whatsoever, not knowing what they're doing going out there and doing things and they don't know what they're dealing with. That's the thing. We don't know what we're dealing with. You don't see what's there. You can hear voices. You can have an angry spirit just trying to scare you, just to get your attention, but just to scare you, to have you leave. It seems like some entities are very territorial. So I can't say that they are a demon. It could be just an, an angry person who crossed over because When I'm finding through my research that your personality continues when you cross over. One of the questions I do have is why do some stay here and some cross over that are not there? I mean, I have relatives who passed on that I tried to get an EVP or take photographs and check the EMFs, even around my father's grave, and I didn't get anything. Now, why is that? Why is some stay and why some go. There are many theories to that fact, and I can't tell you why that occurs. The only theory that I do have that I actually made is people stay back. The reason why is I recorded my ex-wife's grandmother who passed away years and years and years ago, and I just had something was telling me to turn on my recorders, and I did. And she was claiming that her grandfather's house had strange things happening. And I did take photographs and I did catch orbs with faces in it, which is kind of strange. I never saw a dust particle with a face in it. No. (laughs) And uh, I got a voice saying deer and a female voice. It happened to be in the bedroom where we were sleeping for the night. And I played hours and hours. I'm going through film and I'm going through the EVP and listening. That's the most boring side of being a paranormal investigator. But I caught that and I singled it out. I didn't make any changes. It was quite clear. And I played it and I said uh, to Corey, my ex-wife, I said, uh, you got to listen to this. I think I got something. And I played it back and she broke out in tears. She said, that's my grandmother. She passed away 20 years prior. And she was actually about a year later, her grandfather passed away. And that entity, the grandmother was in his house. So that's why I come up with that theory. Sure. So it was like she was waiting for him to join her. Yeah. 
it's a little funny, but I actually asked my mother. I, I whispered to her and nudged her. She's still alive. She's in her mid-80s. And uh, I said, hey, if you do cross over ahead of me, will you, like, wait for me? <laughs> and it was jokingly. And she says, yes, I will. If I have that ability, I will, she said. A couple things for you, Peter. First of all, what did it feel like when your hand went through the apparition? When well, you said you uh, touched it or your hand went through. Yes, like, what my did hand went. Like? It was a cool, tingly sensation. Pretty much if you put your hand through a cold fog, it wasn't a solid apparition. I could see through it. Mm-hmm. It was strange. Uh, that night, it was one of the things that I brought back from Woodlawn Cemetery, uh, I believe, because one evening out. I was sleeping and something told me to wake up. It was just, it was weird. And I'm lying in bed and I look and there's this fog appearing on the wall. And it was a bluish gray color. It was wavy. And then all of a sudden it moved quickly at the foot of my bed because most apparitions, it's funny, if you're laying in bed and they appear, it's either the foot or the head of the bed. I'm glad it wasn't the head of the bed because it caught me off guard. And many times when I did see an apparition or strange things, it was mostly at the foot of the bed. That's what happened when I started being thick on paranormal investigations. I woke up, my tried to wake up my ex, and she was already up. And she said, I know it's there. And I said, well, look, you know, because she used to tag along on my investigations because you always want to witness. You never want to do investigations alone. Just for the witness aspect of it. I uh, reached out and put my hand through it. I said, honey, we've got ghostage. And I was all excited. It's, I was scared, but at the same token, I've always believed that nothing can happen to you without God's permission. And that always gave me the strength when it, things got really bad and things started flying around or something at a cemetery popped up at night. <laughs> <laughs> but I usually do my investigations at night just because it's a lot quieter. On the other side, there's no watch that they live by. In haunted places, they happen in the daytime and the light just as much as at night. In Puerto Rico, we call ourselves Boricua. We are proud, passionate, and full of life. On our island, adventure finds you. Strangers aren't strangers for long. The size of the audience doesn't change the beauty of the music. And we celebrate every last ray of sun. Live Boricua. I know that Woodlawn Cemetery is in Sandy Creek, New York. And could you tell us a little bit about Sandy Creek? Sure. What little I know about it. It was an old town. It was a railroad depot, so to speak. I've done some researches, uh, researching of the places that I investigated. That's part of the investigation. But the town itself, I know very little history about it. I just happen to live there. Is it a big town, a little town? About how no, many people you got there? A, oh, geez. I say it's a small town. Okay. If you were to go there and mention anything about cults or another religion, being a witch or saying, just saying that you believe in ghosts, they kind of give you that look. So there's a lot of haunted places that I, or places I investigated that I could not explain the happenings or why they are occurring. I usually got those looks. So it's a tidy little town, something you would see off a postcard. It's like a farming community, pretty much. 
Woodlawn Cemetery, I know they've got about 5,000 burials in there, so it's a pretty good-sized cemetery for a little town. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the cemetery? What does it look like, and what's it like to walk through there? It's a beautiful cemetery. I mean, some of the headstones, uh, they date back to the early 1800s. You can hardly read them. It's well-maintained. You would go there, and you wouldn't think of anything. That's one thing I've noticed uh, through the years, that there are a lot of little cemeteries around that aren't even on the map when it comes to hauntings or being investigated. Why entities hang around these cemeteries is the like to me I wouldn't know. I know, for one thing, if I passed over, I wouldn't want to hang over my body or Mm-mm. in a cemetery. Yeah, it seems like it'd be kind of boring hanging out with the rest of the dead people. <laughs> Correct. There's only one crypt there that I remember. First time I went there, something, it was funny, but my ex-wife, I was still with her at the time when I started doing investigations. And again, and she told me to check out the cemetery because there's been strange things happening there. Now, if you were to look at the cemetery, there's houses right next to the cemetery. And in the back, there's like a small creek. And from my experiences with paranormal, there's always something to increase the activity. It's either water or a lot of electrical wires, anything to bring the EMF up, electromagnetic field. It seems they kind of thrive on that. Sometimes the stones on the earth gives it charge. I don't understand it, but there's a little creek in the back. There's a couple trees. It's like I said, it's well-maintained. You would never think it was haunted at all. And the first time I did an investigation, it's like, uh, do as I say, but don't do as I do. (laughs) Because I did an investigation alone there the first night and I got absolutely nothing. No EMF, nothing on the films, nothing on the video camera, nothing on the infrared, nothing on my recorders whatsoever. I had electrical recorder and I had the old tape recorder uh, with a blank tape on it. And I got absolutely nothing. But the second time I investigated, that's when things got hairy. It was like uh, they were like checking me out, I guess. <laughs> Curious what I was doing, uh, because I did get an EMF where I was, my batteries were drained. And that usually happens in any location as paranormal activity. It seems like they drain your batteries fast. And I had to change the batteries in my equipment. And I'm sitting on a tombstone and I'm doing this, setting all the equipment up to change the batteries. And one of my little recorders had enough juice to pick up. What is he doing? That's funny. (laughs) I'm like, why is this guy wandering around in the dark by himself? Right. And what is this this thing he has in his hands? Mm -hmm. You know, of course, if someone passed on. So I was an intelligent haunt. So that was one of the things that I did get out of there. I tell people to keep an open mind and people try to say, well, there's a good explanation. I would hear their explanations and I would usually disprove their explanation. It's a pseudoscience that most people say it's pseudoscience. I wish there was universities that got into this field and study. And I had a team of 10 people training them and I actually went in the cemetery and I would break them up to groups of two and explain what to do. And unfortunately, a lot of people who are new in this field like to talk a lot and can't get good EVPs from people that are gabbing. (laughs) That is true. They kind of uh, corrupt that. Drown out everything. Yeah. Yes. How many times have you investigated Woodlawn Cemetery? Six times. 
It was about third or fourth time. That's when I pulled. When I were done, we huddled together and say, you're not to follow. You know, we're done with our investigations. It's like me telling somebody, hey, stay here and don't move. They might just go anyway. Say, hey, who are you? I'm going to follow you. You know, you gave me attention. I want to I want to get more attention from you. either because they need help crossing over. I don't know what the reasons are. It's not guaranteed that they're going to stay in place. And I brought a couple things home with me. And they're intelligent. It seemed to be all intelligent. And it came down from the bed shaking uh, every other night, the thing, objects being thrown off the counter, EVPs. I got one from there from, it was a little girl, and that creeped me out. Kids' spirits, for some reason, just creeped me out. Mm-hmm. Why are little kids stuck here? You know, I, this is just the worst thing imaginable. And I heard on the EVP, meow, nice kitty. And I had a Persian cat mm. who like to sleep with me at night and apparently that little ghost girl saw the cat on the bed and like my cat it does creep me out to this day <laughs> so was it just a little female ghost that followed you or did yeah. you have other things that came too i'm sure there was other things there was i don't know if that was in the house to begin with because the house was claimed to have weird things happening from the previous people that lived there and i investigated the house and came up with a lot of research it used to be a hospital back in the 1800s and it was converted into apartments what was the indication for you that a spirit had actually followed you from the cemetery rather than a spirit that might have already been in the apartment? The activity increased. The activity, it just twofolded, Denise. It, it seemed like when I first went there, it was just little things. Mm-hmm. And and then it just escalated. You know, it gets pretty annoying when your bed shakes at night. You're just ready to go to sleep. And all of a sudden, I'm sure people out there that have experienced this know it's exactly what I'm talking about. And then it's, you felt that you could never get the place warm. You know, we'd have the heat up to 80 degrees and it was just still cold in there, no matter what we did. Yeah. And we didn't have that problem before. So this entity that followed you home, did you tell it it needed to go back to the cemetery? Did you go back to the cemetery and say it had to tag along kind of like a stray dog? (laughs) I do like your wording, Diane. (laughs) Well, when you were describing it, that's what I was picturing is a stray dog in the cemetery that you're saying, stay here, stay here. And it just kind of creeps along behind you and you keep turning around and going, stay here, stay here. And it keeps coming. Uh, no, it was just that instant. Most of the time when I do that, you know, you say a prayer and you say that you have to stay here. Um, they do. They do stay. But you've got some that are so desperate for attention. I mean, it's like a little child. You know, you give them, you know, I like I said, I believe the personalities cross over. Maybe they're lonely. One thing I always said to people, you ever watch the movie Others? That could be a theory as well. I mean, I it, it kind of rung a bell to where maybe we're the ghost to them. I never told them they had to go back. They followed me for a reason. And I don't know why. They were a little mischievous, but I didn't feel that they were negative. I felt that there were human beings that crossed over. And I gave them attention. I've asked on EBPs what it's like on the other side. And I'd always get creepy answers. Cold. Help me. I'm scared. And it's like, uh, wow. If that's the other side, I'm not looking forward to it. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I always imagine it would be a beautiful thing. But if you're stuck here because of emotional reasons, I'm I'm sure you're living in your own hell. Yeah, I've often wondered if hell isn't that. 
that the people that are here, that is hell. There's not some fiery pit somewhere that because that no, to me would be hell. If you were just stuck here and people can't hear you or see you or... I believe hell is our own making. Mm-hmm. With your investigations at Woodlawn Cemetery, what would you guys do? Like, what would you set up? And then would you go around to certain tombstones that you were familiar with and try to communicate with who was buried there? Or were you just trying to communicate with anything in general? Well, there's an old section of the cemetery, and then there's the newer side. And they're continuing to do burials as we speak. So there was not one particular location. Like I said, I had people about four to six people that were in our group. I would take people two at a time, at least two at a time. They were no, they they would do their EVPs. I would break up the section of the cemetery where two people would go in one quarter half, two people would go the other quarter half, just like that in all four corners. And then we'd work our way and meet to the middle. And whenever we did the EVPs, I would say, you say your name, but I'm now doing an EVP at certain, certain time. And, and of course, you're filming. One person will be filming and the other person would be doing an EVP. And while the one person is doing EVP, he has the EMF. And if you have a third person, you would have the infrared thermometer because then you can get fluctuations. Now, now they have equipment where they have the thermometer, infrared thermometer attached to the the EMF detector. That's how we would do it. And then we would, afterwards, we'd, like the next day, we would get together, take our our equipment, and that's basically it. We just had simple equipment, and we've gotten a lot of stuff. I mean, you, you don't need to spend thousands and thousands of dollars on equipment, anything like that. You could, a lot, a lot of my stuff was from Radio Shack. It did a great job. And I had a video camera, regular Sony video camera that had infrared. One woman had a digital camera and that was like a high pixel rate on it with infrared and a different, you know, she could uh, take certain colorations and saturations off of pictures that she was taking. And we've gotten a lot of evidence there that things that we just can't explain. I'm talking, we had like a look like a red plasma coming out of one person grave with a face on it. We've had orbs with faces that looked like floating faces. Yet we had mists that were appearing into human form. We had so many EVPs. And I saw a couple tombstones that were broken. And I just happened to mention to my partner at the time, I says, we must have had some vandals in here. Just the way it was broken, some of the tombstones. Mm -hmm. And I heard, yes, in the background. Oh, wow. Yeah. So basically, that's telling me, sure, we had some vandals here. What other kind of EVPs would they say things that would pertain necessarily to names that were there or just trying to talk to you? Not so much the the names so much, but basically uh, answering. Like I'd have a little conversation or I'd ask a question and I would get simple answers. Very rarely would I get a full sentence. The only time I've had full sentences when I was, it was at uh, Ford, Ontario. I get full, complete sentences. I would get like maybe four or five, six words. It's, it's depending on how much energy they could bring up to affect the recorders or the video that you have. I don't know how they do it, but they do. They, they seem to affect the electrical equipment and manipulate it to get the message through. Before you'd ever been in the cemetery, were there rumors around the town that it was haunted? Or were you just going in there and saying, well, it's a cemetery, let's see if it's haunted and you got stuff? Yeah, that's exactly what happened. Of course, you know, there's... You have people that have stories. I mean, anytime you have a little town, you're going to have old folklores and stories. 
when I first moved there, that cemetery was not even mentioned. And I happened to see it when I was driving by with uh, my ex-wife. And she says, yeah, I think there's entities in there. You know, some people are more sensitive than others. I don't put 100% faith in psychics, but I don't discredit them neither. You know, in mediums, I don't just, I always keep an open mind. And then, of course, the hair stands up in the back of your neck or your arms. Mm -hmm. That's a good tail sign that something's not normal. Of course, that's why they call it paranormal. A lot of the things that we caught, you couldn't see in the naked eye. It was just when we were going through the video footages or quarters that there was something there that we picked up something. Yeah, there was times where I would check out the grave. That one where I saw the plasma coming out of the grave with a face on it, it was a newly interred grave. Interesting. Yeah. I don't know why he was still sticking around because they say that I've heard I've heard theories that you stay around your body, you attend your funeral, and then right after the funeral, you go into the light. Mm -hmm. That's from what I've heard. Like I said, there's more questions than answers, and that's why I was in that field. Peter, we want to thank you so much for contacting us and suggesting the cemetery to us and sharing your experiences there as well as your other paranormal experiences. It was really great having you on. Well, thank you, Denise. And Diane, it was a pleasure, and I'm glad to meet you. I just, I'm just i in the middle of still listening to all your podcasts. I think I'm 194 or something like that. I mean, I, I listen to the new ones, and then I drop back all the way back to listen to the early days. And you could actually, you can hear the progress <laughs> and you guys tweaking the show and making it better and just have that energy between you two that's just perfect. Well, you thank know? you. So you take care and I will keep in touch and I have you on Facebook. Thank you. All right. Okay. Bye-bye. 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 Next up, we have Chestnut Grove Cemetery, and this was suggested to us by our listener, Rebecca Hefner. Chestnut Grove Cemetery is located in Ashtabula, Ohio. There are over 5,000 burials here. Ashtabula's name was derived from the Lenape tribe word Ashtapihile, which means always enough fish to be shared around. These indigenous people were pushed out of the area by the Northwest Indian War that took place after the Revolutionary War. European Americans started settling here in 1803. Ohio was a free state during the Civil War, and Ashtabula became a main stop on the Underground Railroad due to its proximity to Lake Erie. The city was officially incorporated in 1891. The city came to be known as a port city and railways were constructed to connect the city to a national network to make importing and exporting easier. In April of 1868, the Michigan Southern and Northern Indiana Railroad merged with the Lakeshore Railroad to form the Lakeshore and Michigan Southern Railway. A later merger gave this company the entire route from Buffalo to Chicago. A bridge was built over the Ashtabula River by the Lakeshore and Michigan Railroad and was the joint creation of Charles Collins, who was the engineer, and Amasa Stone, who was the chief architect and designer. He also was the president of the company. Collins felt that Stone's bridge design was, quote, too experimental, but he approved it because there was a lot of pressure to get it done. The bridge was never properly inspected. This would come to light on December 29, 1876, when train number five, known as the Pacific Express, was about a thousand feet from the Ashtabula train station. The bridge gave way beneath the weight of two locomotive cars that were hauling 11 rail cars. There were 159 people aboard the train. The Chicago Tribune ran the following article on December 30, 1876. The proportions of the Ashtabula horror are now approximately known. 
Daylight, which gave an opportunity to find and enumerate the saved, reveals the fact that two out of every three passengers on the fated train are lost. Of the 160 passengers who the main conductor reports as having been on board, but 59 can be found or accounted for. The remaining 100, burned to ashes or shapeless lumps of charred flesh, lie under the ruins of the bridge and train. I just love how descriptive they were in old newspapers. I don't think you'd read lumps of charred flesh in our modern day papers. No, I don't think so. The disaster was dramatically complete. No element of horror was wanting. First, the crash of the bridge. The agonizing moments of suspense as the seven laden cars plunged down their fearful leap to the icy river bed. Then the fire, which came to devour all that had been left alive by the crash. And that's how most people died. They died in the fire afterward, not the actual crash. Then the water, which gurgled up from under the broken ice and offered another form of death. And finally, the biting blast filled with snow, which froze and benumbed those who had escaped water and fire. It was an ideal tragedy. The scene of the accident was the valley of the creek, which flowed down past the eastern margin of Astubula Village, passes under the railway three or four hundred yards east of the station. Here, for many years after the Lakeshore Road was built, there was a long wooden trestle work, but as the road was improved, this was superseded about ten years ago with an iron how truss built at the Cleveland shops and resting at either end upon high stone piers, flanked by heavy earthen embankments. The iron structure was a single span of 159 feet crossed by a double track 75 feet above the water, which at that point is now from 3 to 6 feet deep and covered with 8 inches of ice. The descent into the valley on either side is precipitous, and as the hills and slopes are piled with heavy drifts of snow, there was no little difficulty in reaching the wreck after the disaster became known. The disaster occurred shortly before 8 o'clock. It was the wildest winter night of the year. Three hours behind its time, the Pacific Express, which had left New York the night before, struggled along through the drifts and the blinding storm. The 11 cars were a heavy burden to the two engines, and when the leading locomotive broke through the drifts beyond the ravine and rolled on across the bridge, the train was moving at less than 10 miles an hour. The headlamp threw but a short and dim flash of light in the front, so thick was the air with the driving snow. The train crept across the bridge. The leading engine had reached solid ground beyond, and its driver had just given it steam when something in the undergearing of the bridge snapped. For an instant, there was a confused crackling of beams and girders ending with a tremendous crash as the whole train, but the leading engine broke through the framework and fell in a heap of crushed and splintered ruins at the bottom. So basically, the first engine had gotten through, it was on solid ground, and the rest of the train just broke off behind it. Didn't even pull it down with it. Wow. Notwithstanding the wind and storm, the crash was heard by people within doors half a mile away. For a moment there was silence, a stunned sensation among the survivors, who in all stages of mutilation lay piled among the dying and dead. Then arose the cries of the maimed and suffering. The few who remained unhurt hastened to escape from the shattered cars. They crawled out of the windows into freezing water waist-deep. Men, women, and children, with limbs bruised and broken, pinched between timbers and transfixed by jagged splinters, begged with their last breath for aid that no human power could give. So that's how loud this was, is that homes that were that far away, they heard this horrible crashing. I can't imagine what that would sound like. No, you'd just be sitting inside your house, and all of a sudden, you would have no idea what had just happened, because I can't, since it was unprecedented, that would have just been horrific, just this loud, and then the cries, I can't even imagine. And then you're running to try to help them, but the snow is drifting, so it's, it's almost impossible for you to get to them. Five minutes after the train fell, the fire broke out and the cars piled against the abutments at either end. 
A moment later, flames broke from the smoking car and first coach piled across each other near the middle of the stream. In less than 10 minutes after the catastrophe, every car in the wreck was on fire, and the flames, fed by the dry varnished work and fanned by the icy gale, licked up the ruins as though they had been tender. Destruction was so swift that Mercy was baffled. Men who, in the bewilderment of the shock, sprang out and reached a solid ice, went back after wives and children and found them suffocating and roasting in the flames. The neighboring residents, started by the crash, were lighted to the scene by the conflagration, which made even their prompt assistance too late. By midnight, the cremation was complete. The storm had subsided, but the wind still blew fiercely, and the cold was more intense. When morning came, all that remained of the Pacific Express was a windrow of car wheels, axles, brake irons, truck frames, and twisted rails lying in the black pool at the bottom of the gorge. The wood had burned completely away, and the ruins were covered with white ashes. Here and there, a mass of charred, smoldering substance sent up a little cloud of sickening vapor, which told that it was human flesh slowly yielding to the corrosion of the fires. On the crest of the western abutment, half buried in the snow, stood the rescued locomotive, all that remained of the faded train. As the bridge fell, its driver had given it a quick head of steam, which tore the dry head from the tender, and the liberated engine shot forward and buried itself in the snow. The other locomotive, drawn backward by the falling train, tumbled over the pier and fell bottom upward on the express car next behind. The engineer Folsom escaped with a broken leg. How? He cannot tell, nor can anyone else imagine. There's no death list to report. There can be none until the list of the missing ones who traveled by the Lakeshore Road on Friday is made up. There are no remains that can ever be identified. The three charred, shapeless lumps recovered up to noon today are beyond all hope of recognition. Old or young, male or female, black or white, no man can tell. They are alike in the crucible of death. For the rest, there are piles of white ashes in which glisten the crumbling particles of calcined bone. In other places, masses of black, charred debris, half underwater, which may contain fragments of bodies, but nothing of human semblance. It is thought that there may be a few corpses under the ice, and there were women and children who sprang into the water and sank, but none have been thus recovered. Wow, the, just the verbiage that they use in that report of the train accident, you almost wonder, like we become so desensitized, but I wonder if we still reported news like this, that it might bring that back, how horrific something like this really is, because I'm just sitting here going, oh, oh my gosh, it just brings up visions of just horror. Yeah, I mean, I can't, I can't even imagine this kind of a tragedy. And back then they had, at least nowadays, we have some kind of hope of identifying bodies. But back then, there was just no hope. Charles Collins was said to be a broken man over the tragedy. He was called to testify before the state legislator committee. The Monday before this, he had tendered his resignation to the board of directors of the railway company, but they refused to accept it. Days later, Collins was found dead in his bedroom of a gunshot wound to the head. Initially, it was thought to be suicide out of guilt, but later a second bullet was found in the wall and it was ruled a homicide that was never solved. Documents discovered in 2001 in another examination of Collins' skull back up the theory that he was indeed murdered. A mass of stone committed suicide seven years after Collins' death when he started experiencing financial troubles with his foundries. This seemed to compound his guilt over the train disaster. Modern-day investigations have theorized that it was not the design that was the problem, but fatigue in the cast-iron lug pieces which were used to anchor the wrought-iron bars of the truss together. Shims of metal were needed to reinforce them because they were poorly made. 
So you have these two men, particularly Charles Collins, who felt that they were to blame for this. And when we get into more of our modern investigations, we found that maybe they had nothing to do with it, that it was the actual material that they were using. Because of the fire from the disaster, it was impossible to identify 25 of the victims. I can't believe it was just 25 that they couldn't identify. And they were buried in a mass grave at Chestnut Grove Cemetery. There's a towering obelisk there that marks their final resting spot, and it has a nice little ring of flowers all around it. Other victims were buried at the cemetery as well. In this particular area, there are a ton of cemeteries, so some of the victims were buried elsewhere. But there were others that they could identify that were put in Chestnut Grove. Charles Collins, ironically, was laid to rest just a few feet from the victim's mass grave. The Chestnut Grove Cemetery is still actively burying people today, and the grounds are beautiful and well-kept. Stories abound of hauntings connected to the train disaster and the cemetery. Apparitions believed to belong to the victims are seen near the mass grave memorial, and stories claim that they make their way to the area of their death near the river on the anniversary of the accident. Not all sightings entail sad ghosts. Some scenes are of children laughing and playing, and there have been ghostly picnics. A feature written in the Cleveland Digital City for Halloween in 2002 discusses several legends connected to the Ashtabula Bridge disaster and Chestnut Grove. Lisa Galloway writes, Reports of race near here are many. Witnesses mention families dressed in period dress, always warm winter clothes, wandering together, often carrying carpet bags and baskets. Screams are heard late at night. Many visitors say a charred odor pervades the grounds, and near Collins' crypt, a man can be seen weeping bitterly, crying out over and over, I'm sorry, I'm so very sorry. Then we have another Greenwood Cemetery. The city of Decatur in Illinois is named for Stephen Decatur, a naval hero of the War of 1812. This was the first home of Abraham Lincoln, and he argued five cases here in the log building that served as a courthouse at the time. In the southern part of the city near Decatur Lake is a burial ground that dates back more than 160 years. Greenwood Cemetery was incorporated in 1857 and is possibly one of the most haunted cemeteries in America. This cemetery has not been well cared for through the years and has at times been overgrown. And even worse, grave robbing was common. The Sangamon River feeds into Lake Decatur and runs right by the cemetery. One year, many years ago, the river swelled and ran into the cemetery. The force of this washed out several graves and carried the coffins away. The bodies were eventually recovered, but it was impossible to identify the remains. It was decided that the only option was to rebury the bodies in a mass grave. And are we seeing a growing theme here? We've got all these mass graves in each of these cemeteries. We know that handling remains in this way can sometimes result in strange activity. And that is the case here. Ghost lights in the area that had been washed out are seen, and dark, misty, and shadowy figures have been seen floating there. There was a large public mausoleum located in the cemetery that fell into disrepair as the rest of the graveyard became unkept. Pieces of the building began to fall off, and by the 1960s, it was in such bad condition that it was decided to demolish the structure. Family members were asked to claim the remains of their loved ones and relocate them. Anyone that was not claimed was buried in yet another mass grave. In 1967, the mausoleum was torn down and not replaced. Before being destroyed, rumors circulated about paranormal activity inside of the mausoleum. Crying and anguished screams were heard reverberating inside, and ghost lights danced about the structure, inside and out. This activity did not stop after the mausoleum was no more. 
Visitors still claim to hear faint screams and to see strange lights in the area where the mausoleum once stood. It's really sad when you have these big, beautiful mausoleums and then you just don't take care of the place. I just, I don't know if they just didn't have a group or an organization to take care of the cemetery that kept money in perpetuity to take care of it. I'm not sure, but that just, I'm, I'm like, it just seems sad that you have to take down a whole mausoleum and then you've got to remove all of these bodies. And yet again, here we have to put a bunch of people in a mass grave because their family members are either dead or haven't come to claim them. So we'll just dump them over here. Well, and it just, that, that's the one thing that always makes me really sad when I see any cemetery that's just like overgrown or disrepaired and just not taken care of. It's just a really sad thing to me. Now we have a third mass grave here as well. This one holds the bodies of Confederate soldiers. These men were being transported by train to a POW camp when many of them fell ill with yellow fever. Several of them died and the train was stopped near Greenwood Cemetery so the bodies could be offloaded. The bodies were then taken to the cemetery and buried in a mass grave together. The work was done hastily, and as you can probably already guess, not all the soldiers were completely dead, and some of them were buried alive. Hmm. From that time, apparitions of Confederate soldiers have been seen in the cemetery. One man reported his experience after encountering a soldier at the cemetery. soldier was standing among the tombstones and gestured for the man to come over to him. Now, if I see what looks like a soldier gesturing for me to come over, I'd be like, "Eh, no, no, thank you. Even if I didn't think it was a ghost, I'd be like, why are you wearing that uniform and asking me to come over? And then as he's getting closer to it, he sees that it's a tattered uniform. So it's probably not a reenactor because usually they have pretty nice looking clothes, pretty new. The soldier had a look of confusion on his face. Can you help me? The soldier asked. And then he continued, where am I? The man stood in shock, unable to speak. The soldier then said, I just want to go home. He then disappeared. I thought, wow, isn't that sad that here he is, he's lost, he doesn't know where he is, and he just wants to go home. Hmm. And at this point, I don't know what year this was, but I'm assuming it's a more modern time. So this is, what is it, 100 years that he's just been hanging out in the cemetery wondering where he's at? As if this haunting activity isn't enough, there are two more legends here at Greenwood. These are the legends of the Brockman Staircase and the Greenwood Bride. The Greenwood Bride is Our Lady in White at this location. Her figure has been seen wandering among the headstones, and the story is that she is looking for her fiancé who was murdered before their wedding. He apparently was a bootlegger who was killed by a rival bootlegger. No one knows who she is, but people like to say that she drowned herself in the river over her grief. And part of that story is that his body was thrown into the river by whoever murdered him, so maybe that's why she threw herself into the same river, to be with him, maybe. Greenwood Cemetery is like many cemeteries in that it has many rolling hills. The Brockman family has their final resting place on one of these hills, and they had five stairs installed that lead up to the plot. At sunset, on some evenings, a ghostly figure appears at the top of the stairs with her head bowed, and she appears to be crying. She disappears as the sun sinks below the horizon. Do some spirits feel so attached to their human body that they're unable to leave the body after death? Could that be why some cemeteries seem to be haunted? Are these four cemeteries haunted? That is for you to decide. Well, those are some more cemeteries to check out. I just love doing cemeteries, as you know, and uh, when they're haunted, it makes them even that much better. And I've been having a lot of fun doing the research for our bonus episodes that are the Stones and Bones. Stones and Bones. Got another one of those coming up here. Going through the cemetery series, because we love, since we're taphophiles, we love going through cemeteries when we visit cities. Now as we visit, I'm looking around going, okay, are you real? 
because it's so many hauntings that seem like actual people, not not really missed or anything that, at the cemetery. So one of these days, maybe. Ah. Yeah, I'm still not sure if I really want to see a full-bodied apparition, and I'm thinking in the cemetery, no. Don't ruin it for me, because I love them. Most of them are pretty peaceful in the cemeteries. That is true. We'd love to have you guys check out our website at historyghostbump.com. And Denise, if people want to send us some feedback, where can they do that? They can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. want to point you at another podcast that I've been listening to recently. This is a true crime, and it's called Corpus Delicti. It's a couple of Southern ladies that host that one. So uh, it's a lot of fun to listen to what sound like uh, Southern women talking about true crime. With their twang. Yeah. I mean, they just sound like they're sweet ladies that should just be sitting down drinking their sweet tea. Sweet tea. And and here they are talking about death and mutilation and all kinds of stuff. Sounds interesting. (laughs) Check it out. I do want to let you all know that we have everything up and ready for registration to start for our 2018 trip to Key West, Florida. And that's going to take place on July 13th through the 16th. And like I said, the registration is up. It's up in the Spooktacular crew. You can find it on the History Goes Bump page on Facebook, as well as the History Goes Bump webpage. You just send your registration. I'll send an invoice out. And once you pay, your spot is saved. There's only 40 spots on this trip. So register soon to make sure you can and join us in the tropics as we discover the legends and ghosts of the Florida Keys. It is key that you get in at least the $100 deposit with your registration to make sure you get put down on the list. Absolutely. And even if we fill up, we will still take your registration, maybe not a deposit, just in case somebody cancels and then we can swap out people or what have you. Yep. So we, we will start a waiting list once the 40 spots are done, like Diane said, just in case there's a cancellation so that other people will have a chance to fill those spots. We have a couple of reviews to share from Apple Podcast. HAF 230, my favorite things, five stars. History and hauntings, two of my favorites wrapped into one, perfect length for my attention span too. And Celtic Rider, 10 thumbs up, five stars. Hey, I love that 10 thumbs up. Great podcasting. I really like the way they delve into the historical background of the people, places, and eras rather than just telling a bunch of ghost stories. Good guests and interviews also. My favorites so far are the Henry Ford Museum with the JFK car and Edison's Last Breath and the Penn State Ghost because I visit the campus often and come from an eerie part of Pennsylvania, LOL. Keep up the good work. And yes, we see what you did there. (laughs) (laughs) We want to thank you guys for joining us for this episode. I have been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. We'd like to thank Shelby Hammond and Amber Vanderwolf for increasing your pledges. Thanks, ladies. Check out the website at historygoesbump.com.